So turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, where I will be reading verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Now the New King James says, who can make straight what he has made crooked? Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one day as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Would you pray with me once again, please? And now, Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us as we meditate on this particular portion of your inspired written word. Open our eyes that we may behold and understand some of the wonderful things you have for us in these two verses. And then help us be doers of your word and not just listeners who delude themselves into thinking that no more is required of us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Life in a fallen world takes many unexpected twists and turns, some of them pleasant, others not, but all of them from the hand of our God who is the absolute sovereign ruler over heaven and earth. One minute life seems to be going along great, the next minute it seems to be coming apart. One moment life in your community is quiet and pleasant, The next moment, a freight train carrying toxic chemicals derails as it's passing through your town and then is subsequently set on fire, leaving your air and your water polluted. One month, business is booming. Several months later, it gets wiped out by a hurricane or a pandemic. One moment, life is going along normally. The next moment, you're told that you have to wear a mask everywhere you go and stay at least six to 10 feet away from every other person on the face of the earth. Last year, you were the picture of health. This year, your doctor says that you have an inoperable and terminal cancer. Fortunately, not all of life's twists and turns are this dramatic. In fact, most of them are far more mundane, like a flat tire on the way to work, spraining your ankle on the eve of the biggest game of the year, or catching the flu on your birthday. But be they big or small, this morning's text reminds us that they all come from the hand of our God. Job experienced both the prosperity and adversity spoken of in our text, and that in some very extraordinary ways. To his credit, however, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say to the credit of God's grace at work in his life, he was able to say during a time of severe hardship in chapter 1, verse 21, quote, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then a little later in chapter 2, verse 10, he said, quote, Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? As a matter of fact, that's what most of us would like to be able to do. Accept good from God but not accept adversity. To accept the good that the God sends our way and enjoy the days of prosperity he sends, but send the days of adversity back unopened, as it were. That is not our choice, however, to make. 
Instead, we as Christian people must learn to accept whatever God sends, nor do we know whether tomorrow is going to be a day of adversity or a day of prosperity. For although verse 14 of our text says God has made the one as well as the other, it also says he has not done so in a manner that lets us, quote, discover or even anticipate which day is coming next or how long it's going to last once it arrives. Many other passages of scripture support the truths found in this morning's text. For example, in the book of Isaiah, the Lord says in chapter 43, starting at the end of verse 12, quote, I am God, even from eternity, I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? In other words, as verse 13 of our text says, who can straighten what God has bent? With the answer to that rhetorical question being, no one. Along these same lines, Job once said of God in chapter 12, verse 14, quote, Behold, he tears down, and it cannot be rebuilt. He imprisons a man, and there can be no release. Which also underscores the truth found in verse 13 of our text that says a man cannot straighten what God chooses to make crooked, as the New King James puts it. In yet another place, God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says in chapter 45, starting at verse 6 in the New King James, quote, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and I create darkness. I make peace and I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. In saying this, the Lord was declaring his sovereign power and authority over two fundamental points of reality, namely what verse 14 of our text calls the days of prosperity and the days of adversity. Elsewhere, the psalmist, speaking of how the Lord provides for all the creatures he has made, said in Psalm 104, starting at verse 28, quote, You give them their food and they gather it up. You open your hand and they are satisfied with good. On the other hand, however... You hide your face and they are dismayed. You take away their spirit and they expire and return to the dust. These same truths apply to God's relationship with you and me and underscore the fact that as verse 14 of our text says, God has made our days of adversity as well as our days of prosperity. No one present this morning except maybe the very young, should have any problem identifying with the truths found in our text. Namely, first, that the road of life has its long straightaways and its sudden curves and uh, sudden curves. That the years of our lives contain days of prosperity and days of adversity. That sometimes we're able to drive the ball right down the middle of the fairway, so to speak, while other times all we seem to be able to do is hook or slice it into the rough. That sometimes life seems to be going with the grain, while other times it feels like our fur is being the rubbed the wrong way, to mix metaphors. That sometimes the lines fall to us in pleasant places, as Psalm 16 says, while other times they fall to us in some very unpleasant and even unwelcome places. 
That there are days when our lot in life, to use an old expression, is filled with one enjoyable experience after another, while other days we wake up to find that God has put a crook in our lot, as the New King James says. Nor, second of all, do we know which of these realities a new day will bring. Or, if I may paraphrase the last part of verse 14, God gives us good times and hard times, and no one can predict with any certainty which time he's going to send tomorrow. Since these things are true, and they are, how should Christians like ourselves live? How should we approach each new day of our life? How should we respond to the crooks in our lot? How should we react when God fills our days with adversity or with prosperity? How should we respond to his sovereignty over our lives, which includes the fact that more often than not, he doesn't tell us what he's going to do next or why he's going to do it or for how long it's going to last. This morning's text exhorts us to consider, that is, think carefully and deeply about two important truths regarding the way in which God works out his purposes in this fallen world, including his purposes for you and me as his redeemed covenant people, both individually and collectively. To begin with then, look at verse 13, where David's son Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, said, Quote, consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Now, once again, the New King James translation puts the question like this. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Thus, the idea of a crook in our lot, as it were. Now, while the Hebrew word translated consider has multiple shades of meaning, it basically means to see. Not with the eyes, but with the mind. Hence, it means to ponder, to contemplate, or to think deeply about something, and then having done so, to discern and understand. A familiar use of this word is found in Psalm 8, uh, where David writes, starting in verse 3, quote, When I consider your heavens, O God, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you take care of him? Now, obviously, David was doing much more than just simply gazing thoughtlessly up into the night sky. Rather, his mind was busy mulling over what his eyes were seeing. And among the conclusions he came to were, number one, God must be very great to have created all that his eyes are able to see. And number two, man is very insignificant in comparison to the vastness of the universe and by extension to God himself. In a similar fashion, Solomon exhorts us in verse 13 of our text to, quote, consider the work of God. Not his work of creation, but his works of providence. Not what we can learn from his having created the moon and the stars, but what we can learn from the fact that no one, quote, is able to straighten what he has been or make straight what he has made crooked. In other words, instead of complaining about what God has bent in our life, we should consider why he has bent it. 
Instead of grumbling about what God has done, we should ponder what our response ought to be now that he has done it. Instead of trying to straighten out what God has chosen to make crooked, we should think deeply about how the promise found, for example, in Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for the good of his elect covenant people, how that promise and others like it applies to our present situation so we can understand, at least in part, what our Savior Christ Jesus would have us learn from this crook in our lot. Now it seems unlikely that Solomon had moral crookedness in mind in verse 13. After all, the book of James tells us that, quote, God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone, at least not in the sense of enticing us to sin the way Satan does or our old sinful nature does. Besides, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 ends with Solomon saying in verse 29, quote, Behold, I have found that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices, thereby assigning the blame or responsibility for the moral crookedness we find in the world to sinful people like ourselves rather than to a holy God. Even assigning the moral crookedness we find in ourselves to us rather than to the Lord. That's not to say that God doesn't use the sinful acts of men and women to accomplish his sovereign purposes. For example, Joseph told his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, uh, quote, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. While the fourth chapter of the book of Acts says those who wickedly conspired together to crucify Jesus were doing, quote, whatever God's hand and purpose had predestined to occur. Now, I admit this is a great mystery. And even if I could, it's not within the scope of this message to try and unravel it. Suffice to say that God may put a crook in our lot because of the sin in our life, but that's a far different thing from saying that he bends our path in such a way that we are left with no other choice but to sin against him. That is something he never does. When Solomon talks about our not being able to straighten out what God has bent in verse 13, He's talking about what one writer called the shape and texture of events that come into our life as well as the lives of others. In other words, he's talking about the kind and quality of circumstances that come to pass in our lives as well as the world at large. He's talking about a state of affairs that we are apt to find unpleasant, perplexing, even difficult to accept. A condition of life where one of the questions that keeps popping in our head over and over and over again is why? As in, why is this happening? Why is this happening now? And the ever popular, why is this happening to me? Or how long? As in, how long is this day of adversity going to last? How long is God going to let this keep happening? How long is he going to keep this up? In short, that which God bends in verse 13 of our text is the equivalent of the day of adversity that Solomon talks about 
in verse 14. Joseph must have wondered, for example, why every time it seemed like his life was just about to get straightened out, God would put another crook in his lot. Job must have wondered why God let the straight path he had been walking get bent all out of shape. Daniel must have wondered after, why after all his years of faithful service in a pagan land that God would suddenly and unexpectedly send him to the lion's den. And Paul must have wondered about some of the crooks in his lot, like all those shipwrecks, beatings, and imprisonments. I doubt if Moses ever expected he would spend 40 years in the wilderness of Midian. I doubt if Sarah ever expected to be barren for 90 years. Or Esther ever thought that she would literally have to lay her life on the line for the sake of her people. I doubt if Stephen ever thought he would be stoned to death. Or the Apostle John ever thought that he would end up being a prisoner on the island of Patmos. And I doubt if you and I ever thought we would have to face some of the crooks that have come into our lives. That we would ever have a stroke or become a widow. That we would ever lose our job because we didn't want to take a vaccine or because as a Christian we just couldn't go along with the wokeness of the culture that we would ever have to depend upon the charity of others or find ourselves going through a divorce, that we would ever have to battle cancer or fall and break our hip. A man named Thomas Boston, who lived back in the early 1700s, actually wrote a book entitled The Crook in the Lot, based largely upon Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13. If you've never read it, I encourage you to find a copy and read it. He wrote a whole book on one verse out of the Bible. Boston's first proposition in his book was this, quote, whatever crook there is in our lot is of God's making. Let me repeat that. Whatever crook there is in our lot is of God's making. Do you believe that? Are you at peace with that? Are you able to say, for example, with Horatio Spafford, whose four children drowned when their ship sank in the Atlantic Ocean, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Are you able by Christ's grace to believe even when you can't see how that God is working all things, including all those things he's bent together for your good? And that leads us to Boston's second proposition, which is this, quote, whatever God sees fit to mar in our lot, we will not be able to mend. Let me repeat that. Whatever God sees fit to mar in our lot, we will not be able to mend. Put it another way, whatever God makes crooked, we can't straighten out. Do you believe that? You like that? <laughs> Are you at peace with it? 
I'm not asking you if the crooks in your lot are easy or pleasant because many of them are not. I'm asking if you believe you are going to benefit from whatever God has bent in your life, if not immediately, certainly in the long run, and that it would actually be detrimental to your spiritual and maybe even your physical well-being if you were somehow able to straighten out that which God has chosen to bend or make crooked in your life. The psalmist speaking of God once said in Psalm 119 verse 68 in the NIV, quote, you are good and everything you do is good. And then a few verses later in that same context, he added, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn God's statutes. Now, if these things are true, and they are, then it's good that God puts crooks in our lot. And it's also good that you and I can't straighten them out. Indeed, for God's redeemed covenant people, those things that look crooked to us aren't really crooked at all, but like the illusion created by a stick being half in and half out of water. Ever seen that? They just seem to be crooked because, as Charles Bridges put it back in the mid-1800s, quote, they cross our will and thwart our imagined happiness, end of quote. What we often fail to see is that God is using the things he bends in our lives to bring about, for example, what the book of Hebrews calls, quote, the peaceable fruit of righteousness, so that we are not, quote, condemned along with the rest of the world, as 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says. And that these are things that might not have come to pass if you and I had the ability to straighten out those things in our life that God in his wisdom and sovereignty has seen fit to bend. The other thing we need to consider from this morning's text is that God sends both prosperity and adversity and that you and I never know with any certainty which one is coming next. Look at verse 14 where Solomon says, quote, in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider. In other words, think long and hard about the fact that God has made the one day as well as the other. And that he has done so in such a way that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Now when you and I hear the word prosperity, we often think of things like material wealth and affluence. Or we might think about achieving success in some endeavor that doesn't necessarily involve money. And the Hebrew word for prosperity used here in our text can refer to those kinds of things, but it It has more to do with anything that a person might find good, beneficial, or pleasurable, or that produces some measure of enjoyment or delight. Lots of things in life, even in a fallen world, can do that. And they don't all have to do with money or even personal achievement. Things like watching a beautiful sunset, getting married, the birth of a child, Or a grandchild. Having a son return home safely from an overseas war zone. 
making a new friend, seeing a loved one come to Christ, or just having one of those really good days that come along every once in a while. So what should our response as Christians be to days of prosperity? Should we take the pessimistic approach, an approach that says, sure, things are good now, but it's not going to last, or something bad must be about to happen because life just can't be this good all the time? Should we take the flatline approach, which is my personal favorite, by trying to suppress our enthusiasm about our day of prosperity, so when the day of adversity does strike, we won't be as disappointed or have as far to fall emotionally. No. Solomon's spirit-inspired answer is, in verse 14, and I quote two words, be happy. In other words, enjoy it. Not in some eat, drink, and be merry because we're all going to be dead tomorrow kind of way or some get all you can while you can kind of attitude, but with, a, with heartfelt gratitude to the Lord for what he has graciously chosen to give us at this particular moment. The book of Deuteronomy says, quote, you shall rejoice in all the good the Lord your God has given you in your household. And again, you shall rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And once more, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. As a man named Edward Reynolds said some 350 years ago, quote, when God gives thee prosperity, do thou enjoy it with a cheerful and thankful heart. Are you able to do that? Have you learned how to enjoy the days of prosperity God gives you without worrying about what kind of day tomorrow may turn out to be? Or by going to the other extreme of thinking that from now on all your days are going to be days of prosperity. And I ask that last question because verse 14 of our text tells us God not only sends prosperity, he also sends adversity. So how should we Christians respond to days of adversity? Should we take the doom and gloom approach that says, I knew it. I knew something bad was going to happen. I just knew the good times I've been enjoying couldn't last. Or should we take the spiritual denial approach made popular by proponents of the health and wealth gospel that says, this adversity isn't from God, it's from the devil. I rebuke you, devil, in the name of Jesus. And then go out and try and live as if nothing adverse was going on. Or should we take the I don't deserve this approach, whereby we essentially sulk and complain about how unfair it is for God to treat us, of all people, us who, who are one of his redeemed children this way. And once again, Solomon's spirit-inspired answer is no. Instead, he says in verse 14 that we should, quote, consider. In other words, we should stop and think 
and ponder and reflect and contemplate. On what? On the fact that, as verse 14 says, God has made the one day as well as the other. On the fact that God has made the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. Think about that and learn from it. Or as Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6, quote, consider and be wise. The scriptures tell us that God sends days of adversity for a variety of reasons, which you and I may or may not recognize at the time. Most times we don't. Like, for example, to discipline his sons and daughters, Hebrews chapter 12, to instruct us and edify us in the faith, Psalm 119, or to mold us into the image of Christ, also Psalm 119. Adversity can also serve as a warning to the wicked, Proverbs chapter 13, or as judgment upon those who refuse to repent of their sins, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, to mention just five possibilities. Ordinarily, however, and that word ordinarily is a word that I learned from John Calvin a number of years ago. He kept using it in his writings, and I finally caught on to what he meant. Ordinarily, Solomon says in verse 14 that you and I will not be able to, quote, discover or find out, as the New King James says, exactly what purpose God specifically has in mind. Indeed, ordinarily, the best thing we can do is strive to obey the command in this morning's text to consider the fact that God sends days of adversity our way just as surely as he sends days of prosperity. And that leads us then to this final thought, namely, that it will do us no good to fret about what tomorrow may be like. For verse 14 of our text says, God has not made it possible for us to, quote, discover anything that will be after us. Or as the NIV translation puts it, quote, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Now, obviously, God has told us certain things that are going to happen in the future, like the resurrection of the dead and Jesus' second coming. And people often are able to anticipate or even predict certain events Uh, based on the laws of nature that God has put in place. So this statement about not being able to discover what the future holds needs to be taken in context, which means it should be understood in a restricted sense as referring simply to the fact that you and I cannot predict with any absolute certainty whether tomorrow or next week or next year will be a day of prosperity or a day of adversity. Who could have imagined or predicted back in 2019, for example, all the things that we have gone through as a country and a culture, maybe even individually, over these past four years or so? Who anticipated that sort of thing? Nor is it even necessary for us to know why, uh, which day is coming, in part because our responsibilities as Christians are the same no matter what kind of day tomorrow turns out to be. Namely, for example, to glorify Christ in all we do, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. To love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbors ourselves, Matthew chapter 22. To show our love for Christ by obeying his commandments, John chapter 14. Or as Solomon says at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, verse 13, 
by fearing God and keeping his commandments. When our Savior enables us to do these things, it will matter less to us what kind of day tomorrow turns out to be, in part because we will see it for what it really is, not just a day of prosperity or a day of adversity, but a day which the Lord has made, and therefore a day in which to rejoice and be glad, if for no other reason than because we have a sovereign God who is wisely in control of it all, and we have a sovereign Savior who has promised in the book of Hebrews to never leave us or forsake us, no matter what kind of day tomorrow or next week or next year turns out to be. With those things in mind then, would you pray with me one more time, please? And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you really are sovereign ruler over heaven and earth and that absolutely nothing happens outside your will. Even though those things we consider bad or painful happen according to your wise and holy purposes. Even those things that are truly evil in this world only happen by divine design. And though this is a great mystery to us, it's a truth taught throughout the scriptures and therefore a truth we ask you to help us embrace and believe so that we may have real hope in this life. There are so many things going on in our lives, in the culture and in the world around us that we find painful and perplexing. Even things that oppress our souls, just like the evils in Sodom and Gomorrah oppressed Lot's righteous soul. So help us realize that none of it happens by accident, that none of it happens apart from your sovereign will and purpose. Help us to learn how to be happy in the days of prosperity that you give us and how to be thoughtfully submissive when you send days of adversity our way. Help us to follow the example of Job who was willing not only to accept good from your hand but also hardship and adversity always remembering the wonderful promise you have given us in Romans chapter 8 that you are working all things together for our good and even more importantly for your own glory. So we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.